turn to Revelation chapter 20. We'll get there in just a little bit. We are going to be seeing and learning about the great I am today. And uh, this is a daunting passage, a heavy passage. And yet in the reality of it all, it is a glorious passage. And uh, I pray that our time in Revelation will have been helping us as a church family, that when we sing songs like that, that they have even increased meaning to it than maybe when we sang them some months ago because of who Jesus Christ is, a revealed big God, right? Amen. Well, last Sunday... We are the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20. We talked about the thousand years. Uh, we had two key questions that uh, I brought up that I think the text is answering for us. The first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20 are finishing something and I think preparing us for something. And the two questions were, the first one was, will God doom Satan? And the answer to that is yes, God does doom Satan, as we see in verse 10 of chapter 20. God does doom Satan to the lake of fire. And by the way, that is a very good thing. Uh, I'm tired of him. And uh, he, he will be doomed there. The second question really was a question in preparation, I think, that the text is beginning to address for where we're going at today in the text, uh, the question of, is God fair in dooming unredeemed mankind? Um, we get the Satan thing, but what about those who have not come to Christ? And out of the last Sunday, we saw, yes, yes, God is fair in doing that. It is righteous and right. And, and you see that, that even this idea of after living under uh, whatever your view on, on that, on the thousand years, as I do think it is a li literal thousand years in the future, but, but in this, that uh, after living under the ruling reign of the righteous, faithful, and true one, Jesus Christ, after a thousand years of living under that, uh, there will be unredeemed mankind on the earth at that time. We're not assembling. I'll get to that another week, a couple weeks ahead. But, but there will be, even after all of that time, even then, when Satan then is released... From, uh, from his cage, if you will, the beginning of chapter 20, in a moment after the thousand years, unredeemed mankind will in a moment bolt to him and join him in a final war again with the Lord. And it just shows the reality of this. I think the text is helping us to see that even in this, that our very nature prefers sin to the Lord. And, and in that last Sunday, uh, I think I missed something in it as I walked away from it. And, and uh, after a couple of days, I'm like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I think one of the things that I missed was in this seeing that how unredeemed mankind, the, the reality of the total depravity of all of our hearts without the Lord, unredeemed mankind is to bolt to him. The fact of the matter is, is there's so much truth in that for those who are in Christ. Isn't it amazing? How, let's term it this way, the 
thousands of things that the Lord has done for his own, even every day. And yet, how, as a redeemed follower of Christ, how yet in that, how quickly we will bolt to sin and self. It's just in us, folks. And the reality is, is that without the holding and the sealing work of the Spirit of God when a person comes to Jesus Christ through faith in Christ uh, by grace, only through the holding work of the Godhead is anyone held in his love. Friends, the truth of the matter is, is even as saved ones in Christ, those of you who are saved in Christ, isn't it crazy how we will be here, sing songs like we just sang, and this afternoon and this coming week, we will bolt. So Lord, uh, we're humbled by it. We, we, we acknowledge the fact of our salvation is from you, our retaining in our salvation in you is only because of you. And Lord, in it we rejoice. You are the great I am, that is for sure. So Father, I pray here as we come to this passage here that we would come as people that are humble, that we would come as people that see the great I am, and that we would leave this place this morning having encountered the great I am in such a way that we leave sensing you are bigger than when we came in this morning. Show us more of you, Lord, I pray. Show us more of you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, hey, uh, before we dive in, four resources I want to... Uh, I want to let you know, if you look on your sermon notes page, you will see at the bottom of that, I have uh, four suggested resources. Uh, um, one of them, uh, Larry Osborne, uh, I had a number of classes with him with my doctor of ministry up in Trinity, and I just love this guy. Unique, unique, unique guy. And a book called Thriving in Babylon. And we live in a Babylon-like world. And uh, how is a follower of Christ to thrive in a Babylon-like world? I'd really encourage you to consider reading it. Another one by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. Uh, he talks about in this, the, the subtitle of, his book, of the book is Erasing Hell, what God said about eternity and the things we've made up. And there are all kinds of things that uh, we have thoughts on that we press into the text on who God is and what God has. And, and one of those is today, uh, there's a lot of erasing hell going on in our world, in the theology, and a great uh, response and, and conversation on that. Another one, uh, Erwin Lutzer, I'd read this back in about 2007, uh, One Minute After You Die, I just thought really, really good for uh, helping with that on uh, just what is going on uh, in uh, salvation and seeing the Lord uh, bigger. Another one here, as odd as this feels with those guys especially, the fourth one is actually a, a, a workshop series I had put together for a project in seminary in 2005. That's on the bottom there. It's called The Intermediate State. It was one of the things I had hoped actually to take a Sunday and talk through but I just, I'm not going to be able to, so I decided to take that and just make it fully available to you. Um, so you can go online, you can download, it's 35 pages, single space, so it's like a lot of stuff, and it's got all the PowerPoint slides with it, the whole deal. 
But what's going on in the intermediate state, and especially if you have some questions, I'll probably make a quick reference, go, go read on that. Um, there are a couple things I'd change now, but on the whole, it's, uh, I think is a unique document and really, really helpful for me on that and I want for it to be available to you. So some resources there for you to consider. Well, let's dive into the text, right? And let me set the context for us, remind us where we're at. Uh, the faithful and true writer in Revelation 19, he enters the world scene and wars, uh, wages war on the world that is coming to war against him. And uh, in it, the war is over before it begins. Uh, then at the end of Revelation 19, the beast, uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and uh, are judged and condemned to the lake of fire. That means that Satan, uh, the unredeemed humanity, and redeemed humanity are left, if you will, on the table uh, to have uh, what, what goes on with them. Then last Sunday, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, Satan is seized, he's bound, he's jailed, he's locked, sealed away for this thousand-year period. We're told that Jesus reigns and rules over this period of time. And then after that, Satan is released and the unredeemed bolt to join Satan in a final war of the Lord. And it's over before it began. I noted some think that is referring to the Revelation 19 war. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but some really good people think that's the case. Uh, but in it, uh, we find that yes, Satan is judged and condemned along with his two really bad boys uh, in the lake of fire. And uh, so now remaining is unredeemed mankind and redeemed mankind. I'm bringing this to the table because it's really important to understand the flow. And sometimes these blasted headings and chapter breaks break it all up and we feel like it's all disconnected, but there's a movement going on here. We are being informed on what's happening as things are coming to a closure to start things all anew again. And to come to a closure, we have to deal with these certain entities, if you will, and that's what's happening along the process. We're here uh, in Revelation 11 through 15. We've only got a few verses. Awesome. Uh, awesome in many ways. So we're at the, what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Uh, and I think this is where, as we'll see, unredeemed, unredeemed humanity stands in account before the Lord. We are essentially in the final courtroom scene, the final tribunal uh, of a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed humanity. It's about to be concluded. Uh, I want to note, ever since the beginning, ever since the beginning of mankind, re redemptive history, if you will, Satan has been playing an argument to humanity that there will be no such final tribunal. That's been played since the beginning, and I would refer to Genesis 3, 4. When in this whole initial deal where Satan's with Eve thing going on, and he makes this comment to Eve, because uh, Eve makes a right statement back to him, and then he says, you surely will not die. Think about that. What's the theology behind that? What's being attacked in that? What is being going after that? What's, what, what the argument of this is this argument of there is no final reckoning, Eve. Eve, there's no final judgment. Eve, uh, you will not die. No, 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 no. What God said, he did not mean what you think he uh, said. In this, it contains this argument of God won't do that. God can't do that. It's like it doesn't fit his loving character 
Or, or it's this, uh, God said he desires all to be saved so he can't go back on his word to save all. That's the kind of stuff that comes from this argument. And the thought of coming to a final tribunal before God is uh, argued and avoided and it's redefined and is denied. And I wish the arguments were true. I do. I wish they were true. But Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of to death. And I wish for a lot of things. Some of them aren't true. So here we encounter this uh, along with that, Revelation 20, 11 through 5. Let's work through the text. Verse 11 starts out, Then I saw. Uh, then. Then, mean it's, I think this is flowing right after what we were just reading. Uh, verse 10, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw. Uh, I saw what? He sees two things. He sees a throne. And notice, it's a great throne. In the Greek, it's literally, the word is mega. It's a mega throne. Does that mean its size or its magnitude uh, in, in being the throne of all thrones? It could be both. Listen, for sure it's magnitude. This is the throne of all thrones. And we'll see that very clear in just a second. But it's a mega throne. It's a, it's a great throne and it's white. There is symbolism in Revelation and everything that comes out of this throne is pure and holy and righteous. There is no deceit in this throne. There is no concocting in this throne. There is no manipulating in this throne. This throne is pure and holy and every judgment, every verdict it makes is pure, 100% right and true. It's a great white throne he sees. The second thing he sees, then I saw a great white throne and him. He sees a throne and a him. By the way, not a H-Y-M-N song, but a H-I-M, and he's sitting on it. Literally, it would be, and sitting on it, verb implied, is him. Him is there. <laughs> I just trashed all the students' English at school now. Um, he's sitting, notice. It's this idea of reigning. He's sitting in the place. Someone is, is, is ruling. He's not nervous. He's not fidgeting. He's not pacing. He's not walking. But, but, but the reality is that the judge is residing in the chair. That's what's going on here. He is sitting on his ruling throne in his courtroom. Him. Really interesting. Him who? It's a masculine singular pronoun. Him who? Well, we go to Revelation 3.21. Uh, and Jesus says, the one who conquers, really interesting, listen, the one who conquers, I will grant him, this is Jesus saying it, to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Interesting. Then remember Revelation 5, verse 1? We clearly see that the, 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 the Father is sitting in the throne, and in his right hand holds a scroll with seven seals writing on both sides. In an open palm, the idea is in, in the language there. And he's sitting on the throne. I'm going to do something that I've like almost never done in this series, but I'm going to jump ahead a, a couple chapters. Revelation 22, verse 1, and also verse 3, you can take a look. It says there, the throne of God, the Father, and of the Lamb. 
It's a throne of the Father and the Lamb. And then I'll add John 5, 22. Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then verse 27 of John chapter 5, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment. John chapter 5, add uh, Acts 10, 42, and, and also 2 Timothy 4, 1. 2 Timothy 4, 1 says, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So how do we put this together? Who's the him? Well, biblically, I think we see that God the Father and God the Son share this throne in these passages. I, there's no other way to see it other than that. And yet, throughout Scripture, there is this times of uniquely viewing the throne. There are kind of like highlight him times on the throne. Like Revelation chapter 5, clearly the Father is uniquely in view in that moment. Then we add John 5, Acts 10, 42, 2 Timothy 4, 1. And I think here what's going on is John is uniquely seeing Jesus Christ here on the throne as the one to judge the living and the dead. He sees a throne and him. Is the father there? I think, yes, the father is there. It's like what one does, the other does. Uh, This is team, if you will, in it. And yet there's a unique, I think it's just so interesting. So uh, think that through, work that through. Uh, Just really cool stuff. Uh, Is that cool stuff? I think it's really cool. I think it's really cool. Okay, so the Father, the Son, I think the Son is uniquely in view. Uh, Middle of verse 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, going into this, I said uh, uh, we need to take off our, some uh, preferred theological lenses and let's just let the text show what the text says and we'll work it from there. Uh, this is actually one that's kind of... Uh, caused me to rethink a thinking that I had thinking before I came into this thinking. Uh, From his presence, earth and sky, really it's heaven. I don't like the way the English Standard Version has sky there. Earth and the heavens fled away. No place was found for them. Here in the sight of the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, earth and heaven fled away. I mean, here the agent of creation, Colossians chapter 1, who, who can bring it into creation, uh, is also the agent of its fleeing away creation here. Fled away. The same verb is used in Revelation 12, 6, and, and the woman fled into the wilderness. It's also used in Revelation 16, 20. Every island fled away. It has this idea of like they disappeared, they, they, they vanished. Uh, Revelation 21.1, I'm doing it one more time, looking ahead. Uh, look there. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. We'll get there here in a while. But the big question is, is does this uh, point to total disappearance of old creation or a renewing, rebuilding of I just have to say, going into this, I've thought more of a renewing, rebuilding of. But here in this text, I, I, I struggle to get away from the, from the disappearance of, from the destruction of. 
I think that better fits the idea of fled away. It's gone as it, it ran away. Plus the end of verse 11, it says, no place was found for them. And then I'm going to add 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away. Uh, does that mean come to an end? Does that mean disappear? It'll pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies, uh, key word there, it's talking about the elemental substances, the elements from which everything is made, down to the atoms kind of an idea. It, it, it is burned up and dissolved, the text says, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11 in Second Peter 3 says, since all these things are to be dissolved, Remember, both heaven and earth are polluted by sin. Do you know that heaven has been, if you will, polluted by sin? Well, I can prove that. Go to Job chapter 1 and read Job chapter 1, and we find Satan putting his stinky feet, if you will, stepping into heaven before the Lord. In this, And then we also saw in Revelation 12, Satan wars Michael and the angels, verse 7, in heaven. And verse 8, Satan is booted out from any other access into the heavens. And he's thrown to earth for good. He can't have access. It's kind of like wherever his stinky hands and feet have touched. I'm getting from, I'll just say from this text, this idea that it now is fled and dissolved. I don't want to make a major deal out of that, but I think as you go through the idea here, that's what the feel is coming out of this. So I want us just to leave it there and feel the scene. There's a throne. There's him who sits on the throne. And then all else is gone. That's a big deal. Because in the reality of it, Satan now is gone, the beast is gone, the false prophet is gone, and the earth and the heavens are gone. There is nowhere, these things are nowhere in the scene. All things, all distractions, all misdirections, all things to point at, point at and blame on, are gone. It is a throne and him who sits on it. There is nothing to hide behind. Verse 12. But there is something else here. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And I will just put in a major Greek word here. Woe. Woe. There's that saying, uh, you can run but you can't hide. In this scene, it's you can't run and you can't hide. It's the throne and him and this term, the, the, the dead, the, the great and small, great and small, all classes, all conditions, all status, all stature, all status, all stature of earth is irrelevant anymore. 
I've been president of the United States versus poor person on the street, irrelevant before the throne. Great and small. And notice they are standing before it. He is sitting on it. They are standing before it. It's this clearly the sense of this idea of a courtroom scene. Stand before the judge. Who is this? And there are discussions, is this the unredeemed and the redeemed both standing in this? Some think that it is all humanity, including the unredeemed and the redeemed in this picture here. And I will clearly note the passage actually does not delineate whether it's one or the other or both. But in that situation, you have to look at context and what other scripture says. And so I do need to take a moment here and and talk on that. First, uh, on the context. Uh, I think the context in the scripture point to this being only the unredeemed. The context here is we've been through the seals, the trumpet, the bold judgments, they're done. Christ is returned on the white steed, the thousand years thing is over. We're in the context of sin being dealt with and the curse of sin being dealt with here. Um, uh, Satan is gone, the beast is gone, the false prophet is gone. And we're just in this movement here where what's the next thing? The next thing is unredeemed mankind in this. And soon is coming here, and the text we'll see in just a minute, death and Hades are, are judged in this. And, and chapter, one, chapter 21 begins with everything new. I think we are in the context of evil being reckoned with, taken care of, context, scripture. I'm just going to give you a few here. Romans 14, 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. These passages talk about what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. I actually think when you go and you take a look at these, I think this is where the redeemed appear before Christ and his description is unique and distinct from this judgment going on. Uh, Good people would disagree with me. I just want for you to let know. I think this is the unredeemed because of context and because of other passages. So why doesn't Revelation deal with that? Well, I think Revelation doesn't deal with that. Like, honestly, Revelation doesn't deal with the rapture because it has other things of priority to deal with. And right here, right now, it's dealing what is wrong and evil and taking care of that so we can get to what's new and about to come. And our focus is the book of Revelation here, not systematic theology, study of eschatology, or or, or other things. So I'm going to stay with Revelation here, and that's kind of why I've said I think the emphasis over here is that, and I I think here in the book of Revelation that the emphasis is on the unredeemed standing here. Let's keep moving. So Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Wait, there's something else in this picture. So interesting. And books, plural, were opened. Then another book, singular. Books and a book. And books were opened, then another book was opened, which is, or we're told what the other book is, which is the book of life. All right, see the scene here. The judge is seated, Uh, All those without Christ are before the judge. There are no distractions. There's nothing to blame anything. There's nowhere to hide. And the books and the book are there. 
and the day of reckoning is at hand. Friends, I have to tell you, you go to Daniel 7, verse 10, where it says, the court convened and the books were opened. This is so that scene. And then in verse 12, the end of it, it says, and the dead were judged, listen to this, by what was written in the books, the plural books, according to what they had done. Their judgment basis is founded on books and a book. Isn't that interesting? The books. They're records of, as we understand here, they're records of human deeds. Uh, we could say every thought, intention, every action. By the way, this is not a balancing of good works over bad works. But this is a one's works are unmistakable evidence presented in the courtroom before the judge of the reality, loyalty of one's heart. Works express, works show either belief or unbelief, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. A person who makes a declaration of marriage and then they live like a single person month after month, week after week, year after year, and they go, I, 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 I'm, I'm married. And you go, by your works, you're not married. You are living like a single person. And here, works validate it. Here, a big point out of this is true redemption is not based on a moment of declaration with an unmatched life reality. Faith and works are, ir- are inseparable. They are. Mark chapter 4, the second and the third soils. It's, it's as, as if they make a declaration and then, and then the thing's like, I'm out. There is no works, there's no fruit afterwards. The whole focus of Mark 4 with the four soils is the fourth soil, producing fruit that fits with the receiving act. And then we head to this, those of you who are in small groups in the James study, James 2.17, faith without works is dead. James chapter 2, verse 24, a person is justified by works and not by faith, big important word, alone. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, faith in Christ leads to works for Christ, and works for Christ validate one's faith in Christ. This is not saying the person in Christ is to be perfect. Can we all say, not that? But the idea is there is fruit fitting with salvation. This is the book of deeds, then the book. It's singular, it's a separate book. It's called the book of life. It's a decisive book. It's the book of names. We could say that the books are the books of deeds. This book is the book of names. Really, the idea back in that day, this would make so sense to the person in the first century reading this, because this is what they would do in times for registry of citizens. And one's name or lack thereof confirmed or denied their citizenship in that city. Imagine the scene. 
however it goes. The books are open telling of what they had done. And then the book confirms whether their name is in it or not. The absence of their name in the book is confirmed by the evidence contained in the books. Are angels opening this and and reading this? Is Jesus on the throne? Are these books all on his throne desk? But I think it's clearly this idea that this is going through this. And I don't know, is the angels going uh, in this or is Christ saying, is his, her name in the book? The sad thing is about this courtroom scene, person after person after person after person, the answer is always no. Give me the evidence. Read the books. Faith and works are the team. It begins by faith through grace, uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone. No question about it. But the reality is, is it's validated by what happens afterwards. And I have to be straight up and honest with you and say this, if there's been a declaration at some time in your life, but there's been no fruit going on over time, over time, over time, you need to be really concerned. And it's time to understand that it's not just about praying a prayer. Salvation is not just repeating a prayer. Salvation is making a U-turn of life. In fact, I think in this courtroom scene, what Jesus said in Matthew 7 shows up. Where Jesus here gives this idea in Matthew 7 that that, that uh, some are going to be stunned and they try and defend their case. But Lord, I did blank and I did blank and I did this and I did that and I did that. And, and the judge who bears the scars of the lamb slain for them says, I never knew you. Depart from me, the passage says. By the way, I think here in just in the verse 13 we're about to read here, I do think that, I don't know, who knows how this is going to play out, but I think it's very likely this may very well be a one-by-one courtroom scene. I mean, after all, you go to Psalm 139 and you take a look and you clearly get the idea that the creator of the universe was intimately involved in the creation of every person. Why, why is not the, the creator not involved in the final judgment? How long would that take? But I think this, I don't think this is going to be a, you're not fair, you didn't give me time, you didn't let me reply. Oh, he's got all the time in the world. Oh, there is no more world. He's got all the time. Face to face, how personal is this? Verse 13. Verse 13, I think, describes more of verse 12. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Death and Hades. If you want to learn more about it, I encourage you to go and read the document on the intermediate state. I'll tell you a lot more about that. Maybe some things you don't want to know. Um, Verse 14. This is really cool. By the way, end of verse 13, we don't know what happens with those yet. Unredeemed humanity, there's no final declaration made, but we were given some more information. Then death and Hades were thrown into the what? The lake of fire. Who else is in the lake of fire? Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And now death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They're they're, they're gone. And it says this is the second death, the lake of fire. Death is gone. There will be after this no more death. And Hades is gone. This holding tank until the final judgment. Uh, It will be gone. The beast, the false prophets, Satan, death, and Hades are gone. But yet still we haven't given, receive the information on the unredeemed. So we see verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he, she, was thrown into the lake of fire. couple notes with this verse. This verse gets some pushback by some, and one of them is in verse 15. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in it, some kind of use this to contain the idea of, that it contains the idea of universalism, that everyone will be saved, and boy, I wish it was true. Kind of say that, well, it seems like John is doubtful here whether anyone actually will be thrown into the lake of fire. For sure, Satan and, and the beast and the prophet, false prophet and death and Hades, but what about unredeemed mankind? Uh, I'd encourage you to read Chan's book. He deals with it so well and so graciously. But here's one of the problems with it. The Greek grammar just makes that idea impossible. It just does, and I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, But verse 15, really, the Greek carries this idea that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, and it's this idea of, and I assume there were such, he, he, she was thrown into the lake of fire. I'll just state it this way. John uses a first-class condition, which assumes the reality of the first clause and shows the consequences of the second clause. In other words, there's no idea of universalism here in this statement. And along with verse 10, there's no idea of annihilation or extinction in the lake of fire, like go done over with. Oh, I wish it was. But I can't make God's word say what I want. And by the way, nor can you. Another note with this, I will note the King James Version later in chapter, we'll come to it another time. And uh, kind of correlates over here. It uh, uses and their names are blotted out, and some it's not a good it's not a good translation of what's going on there in the Greek. And 
Some, some grab it and concludes that, well, everyone's name started in the book of life, then they get blotted out. and That's uh, just not what the texts are, are showing. And I'll just say it again. If I could validate no hell and universalism, I would. I've heard the arguments. Trust me, I've read the books. And I just have to be honest to God's word. They fail honest, textual understanding of the word. And here the once empty lake of fire now contains Satan, the beast, the false prophet, death, Hades, and now all those who stood before the throne and whose names were not in the Lamb's book of life and whose books of deeds confirmed why their name was not written in the book of life. Friends, uh, this is no moralistic philosophy fantasy. This is no fear-mongering tale that I'm now going to use to draw you into a frenzy. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll just say this. I believe that God's word speaks for itself. And so I'm just going to let it speak for itself. And I think here we see in these verses, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, why sin-cursed people need a U-turn reality. A U-turn is different than a rest stop. We were just out in uh, D.C. area visiting our daughter and son-in-law and, and two of the truly the Cutest little kid you've ever seen in your whole life. And um, we stopped at some rest stops. They were really nice. Provided opportunities for us to stretch our legs and get a breather and have a little relief and (laughs) go to the restroom and just do that stuff. And they were nice rests. And we needed them at the time. But a rest stop is not a U-turn. A U-turn understands that the depravity of mankind is such, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that we are headed to a dead end. And verses 11 through 15 tell us of that dead end. And we can deny the dead end, we can just be distracted from the dead end, we, we can do all kinds of things from the dead end, but there is a dead end ahead. And the Lord here has told us about this great white throne judgment. I think because he does not want you there. He does desire that all would be saved. But we have a giant sin problem. And without having received the redeeming work of the Lamb... The end game is the scene that we just saw. And that's no joke. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
1 John 5, 11 through 13 says, and this is the testimony that God has given eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son that you may know that you have eternal life. Question. Today, In your life story, what did the books in the book say about you? What is recorded there? Has there been a time where you've come to that place and you've seen that you're a sinner separated from God and in need of a Savior because you're headed for a dead-end hell? And not taking a rest stop and done some little religious ditty thing. Because salvation is not just a prayer. Salvation is a commitment followed by a life growth reality. Not perfection, but pursuing after. Progressive sanctification. Growing to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Is the evidence there to validate your place not here? Because if it's not, oh, in love, please, please come. Let's pray. I'm just going to ask with your heads bowed and eyes closed here. I I, I want for you to know that um, if you are sitting here in this room right now and you are like, oh crud, I'm not sure. If you're in a place to where it's like, I I don't know if I know if I know. You don't want to be in that place. You need to know that you know that you know. And and so today, um, here, we're just making available uh, our elders and our pastors and and their wives. In fact, if guys and gals, if you could just go in the back of the room. We're going to do it opposite of everybody else. And here's the thing. If you're not sure, if you don't know that you know that you know, I'm just going to ask even right now, in our closing song, if you just get up and you would just go out back here, grab one of the pastors, one of the elders, one of the wives, and just say, I I need to talk for a little bit. And they'll just take you in the back in the offices and talk with you for a little bit. Hey, kids, if if that happens to be you and and that's the case, maybe just grab mom, grab dad and say, I just need to talk with someone and, and, and go do it now. Teens, Pastor Cody's back there, Katie's back there. Friends, if you don't know, the Lord does. And it's time to make sure. It's time. 
So I'm just gonna ask here now, you'd get up and just go. During song, get up and go and just grab someone and talk. We're gonna leave it at that. And by the way, if you are in Christ Jesus, in this closing song that we're gonna sing, <laughs> this is a time for full out adoration. Because the only reason that you or I are not there is because of the redeeming work of the Lamb. And because of the work of the Spirit and God in our lives to, to, to come to an understanding of a need for a Savior for our sin. <laughs> and we would bolt if it were not for his sealing and holding power on us, we would bolt. So it's time to adore. And so Lord, I pray, would you do a work in this room? And God, if there's anyone in here so many times in the past, there's been people where it's been like, oh, just something's moving, but I'm just too nervous. But hey, just God, I just pray you would do a work. This is not about patting ourselves on the back. This is about the word of God and doing a work in people's lives. And God, if there's anyone in this room who is just not sure where they're at with you, I would pray that they would just take care of it today. You want them. You desire for them. And yet it does come down to the reality in this of you working in their life to make a choice for you. I pray that would be the case. God, for those who are in Christ, oh, I pray that we would walk out of this room today and we would finish this time together with a song of grand adoration that you would in your grace work and spare any of us is a glorious and grand work of your hand. And so we declare you and praise you and adore you. You are the one on the throne. Lord Jesus, only you. Amen.